For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who, who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. From the letter of Paul to the Romans, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Every year on the first Sunday in Lent, we go with Jesus out into the wilderness. We go like him, driven by the Holy Spirit. We go like him to be hungry, not just for food, but for the food of righteousness, for the fullness of holiness, to be filled with God. Jesus goes out into the wilderness to do battle with Satan. I love what St. Thomas Aquinas says about this. Christ went out into the desert as to a field of battle to be tempted there by the devil. St. Ambrose says that the Lord does this to provoke the enemy. Thus, the temptations which Jesus faces are not like the temptations which you and I daily face. Most often, temptations come upon us and we provoke them or they provoke us. And it is because of the prideful disposition of our minds and hearts that we think that we can prevail. These temptations which Jesus faces are the rather desperate attempts of Satan to thwart the work of salvation. In other words, in this battle, Jesus is on offense and Satan is on defense. He just doesn't know it. We are given normally to think of our position in temptation as defensive, and sermons on this, text, on this text most often become a kind of course in defense against the dark arts, against temptation using certain tactics, tactics like quoting scripture. And as good as that can often be, they are still defensive tactics when used by us. What I want you to see this morning is how the Lord Jesus is on the offense against the satanic thwarting of the kingdom the undermining of all that God is doing against the works of evil in this world. The readings this morning are set up to help us see this reality. We read first of the temptation in the garden and the fall of Adam and Eve, and with them the whole human race from eternal and original righteousness. This is the flip side of the gospel. Original sin, meaning that our state as human beings is that of what Pascal calls disinherited princes who have become infected with the most horrible contagion this world has ever or will ever see, the unavoidable fate of a terminal disease called sin. In the reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, he writes of how death reigned from Adam to Moses and on even further because of one man's trespass. Paul is simply unfolding what Christian theologians call a theology of recapitulation, meaning simply that God in Christ is giving humanity a new head, a new and ever everlasting head, a new capital, you might call, because of a new king. Paul writes this, For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the new Adam, comes to us in the righteousness that comes directly from his personal and perpetual adoration of the Father, directly from his status as one full of the Holy Spirit, to live a life of perfect obedience, 
which is not merely a fact of his divine nature, but something he perfectly wills and willingly consents to. I'll often be talking to children and say, you know, why didn't Jesus sin? And they'll say, because he's God, you idiots. And I'm like, I'm like okay, I guess that's a good, you know. But, but, but here's, the, here's the deal. Uh, you know, I used to think that as a little kid. If Jesus sinned, you know, the whole universe would collapse. It would be this terrible thing. But as I, as I came to read more and more in the tradition, I came to see that, no, obedience is something Jesus wills. He wills it perfectly, not just as God, but as a human being as well. And it is through this obedience, this loving, perfect obedience of Jesus, that we have justification and life. One man's obedience Paul's take on this is that it is not our obedience, not our avoidance of temptation that wins out, that our works of justification are nothing. What works our justification, what works our righteousness before God is the obedience of Jesus in perfect conformity to divine goodness. When Jesus prays and teaches his disciples to pray likewise, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he is offering his loving obedience to the Father for the salvation of all things seen, all things visible, that the kingdom may come to full fruition, making a mockery of evil and a mockery of the tempter. That is what is described in the gospel accounts of the temptation in the wilderness, the provocation of the best defensive weapons of the enemy. And Satan does not disappoint. He brings out the biggest guns and tanks he has, and yet they are still laughable at the end of the day. After 40 days of fasting, we read that Jesus was hungry. No kidding. This is not just some sort of throwaway line. It means that he is vulnerable. It means that he is feeling weak. And in many ways, you might say that his defenses are down. I've at times in my life tried to fast for three days and I turn into a miserable grouch. But remember what was said before. He has not gone out into the wilderness to play defense. He has gone out into the wilderness to play offense, to rack up the score and to win. Satan believes that he is on offense, not defense, and so he goes on the attack when his opponent is most vulnerable, when he is hungry, but we see that he misperceives this hunger and weakness. The first temptation shows us this. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Satan is appealing not only to the Lord's stomach, but to higher aspirations than that. Not just to feed himself, but to feed the whole world, because if you can turn stones into bread, you can feed anybody you want. Benedict XVI pointed out that in his wonderful series, Jesus of Nazareth, that this temptation is a temptation to solve world hunger, to feed the poor and hungry, a temptation to see humanity's greatest ill as that of a lack of food, and going beyond that, a lack of housing, of medicine, of education, or money. But the primary lack which we human beings face is not daily bread. Our primary need is not food. Our primary and abiding lack is for the adoration and glory of the living God. Our end as human beings is not to have full stomachs, but to adore and behold, 
to glorify the very face of God, to live by the word which proceeds from his mouth. I've told the story before, but uh, in the 1960s, the diocese, the Catholic Diocese of San Francisco built a brand new cathedral. Maybe you've been there. It's beautiful and modern. And if you, like a, if you don't like modern buildings, you've got to go see this because it might change your mind a little bit about modern buildings. But it cost some unbelievable amount of money, $100 million at the time. And uh, Dorothy Day was living in the city at that time. And uh, she was quite in support of this project. And people said, how can you, Dorothy Day, support this project? And she said... The poor have no lack of soup kitchens in this city. What they lack is beautiful places where they can adore and worship God. The church faces this temptation constantly, especially as there is mounting social pressure to abandon clear biblical teaching for more pragmatic ends. Why, it is asked, can't the church be reimagined, not as a body of dogma and worship and all of that fold or all, a body with an innate orthodoxy, but reimagined as a body aimed at great social good. If we can't agree about basic Christian doctrine, why can't we just agree that we should do good for the poor? Why can't we simply get about the work of doing good to our fellow human beings and almost forget the work of worship? I was reading a report from a mainline denomination this past week that is worried, as they should be, that if the statistics hold, they will have no worshipers in the pews in 30 years. Not a single one. The suggestion was made that perhaps less attention should be paid to worship and preaching and teaching and more attention be paid to volunteering. The idea was this. Tell everybody to show up at the soup kitchen on Sunday at 10 a.m. Now, no one can be against volunteering. No one can be against works of charity. But what is betrayed by this take is a kind of pragmatism. The problem is that the church's witness to our neighbor, indeed the church's life of charity, is rooted in and pointed towards her communion as the bride with her beloved. Just as the very charity of Jesus is rooted in his loving relationship with the Father. We can't give others what we don't have. Love of God is not just a dispensable accessory to love of neighbor, but its very root. We love because he first loved us, the Apostle John says. In other words, what makes Jesus able to stand against the assaults of the enemy, and the assault is to his great motives. If you really love your neighbor, why don't you turn these stones into bread, it could be said. What makes him able to stand is his position of adoration and praise, not his pity. The same is true for, for his body, the church, and it is true historically that the greatest works of charity have been wrought by those who, enlivened by the church's life of liturgy and worship, of praise and adoration, live to his praise and glory in love of neighbor as well. In short, the vertical supports, informs, and encourages the horizontal just as the horizontal bar of the cross is supported by the vertical. Jesus will offer his very life upon the cross to the glory of the Father, and by so doing, his righteousness becomes a free gift to those of us who is all of us impoverished by sin. Then, that failing, the devil takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple. Who, who knows how? <laughs> Some mystical transportation, a wonderful thing. 
It's hard to get from place to place in the Middle East still. The temptation is rather straightforward. It is a temptation to jump and let the angels catch him. To what end? Well, it's simple. Adoring fans, of course. This is the temptation to be adored, to be thought well of, to be respected, to be thought of as a holy and miraculous man. It must be said here that the devil does not have his own clay. He can't make something. He can only take and twist and give back our God-given desires to be used for his ends. Jesus, being himself a lover of the Father, of course desires to be loved in return and is loved in return. He does not desire to be desolate of the Father's love. And the devil attempts to twist this desire for love into a desire for the love of human beings. And therefore, not a desire for love, but a desire for, for approval, for adoration, maybe even safety. The Lord's response is a straightforward answer. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The temptation or testing of God is a kind of idolatry to treat the living God like an empty idol, an idol crafted to bring human satisfaction, an idol crafted to fulfill our sense of entitlement, our sense of justice, and worse, to be an object of our scorn, resentment, and anger when we are unfulfilled. You can imagine making an idol for yourself and putting it on your mantle above your fireplace and praying to it for this or that, and when it doesn't work out, what do you do? Oh, anger. You take the idol, you smash it on the ground. That's what an idol is. But Jesus has gone into the wilderness not asking what God the Father can do for him, but out of obedience. To be filled. And before entering into a life of ministry, a life that will conclude when he dies, precisely because of what has happened before, he goes. Remember this voice thundering from heaven on his baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus knows himself to be an object of the father's love. And it is this love which gives him courage to love us without needing our love in return without needing our adoration. In the same way, when the Christian knows this, when I know this myself, and when I know myself to be an object of the Father's love for me, and not the sum total of my failures or the sum total of the admiration and esteem of others, it is then that I can truly serve and love my neighbor without need in myself. Satan does not believe that our motives are pure. He does not believe at the end of the day that anyone does anything out of love, but rather a kind of what C.S. Lewis calls selflessness, in which we give to others, but only out of our abundant need to be needed, adored, and loved. Today in the church, there are those who are so given themselves over to a desire for affirmation and adoration, those who need to be loved by others, that they have forsaken the compelling and essential identity of those who are beloved by the Father. The end of the church's life so quickly becomes little more than people-pleasing, a base desire to show how admirable and kind we are rather than to reflect the priority of the kingdom, which is the exaltation of Jesus Christ as king. Everything else becomes fair game. The church's doctrines, the church's witness to the truth, and the church's godly order and discipline. 
It is refashioned, it is remade, and our idolatry and tempting of the Lord is made manifest. God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. And if we sow the seeds of admiration, we might reap admiration, but we will never reap the righteousness of God. If we sow seeds of being beloved by others, we will never reap being beloved of God. Again, this means simply this, that the church as a whole and each individual Christian must retreat to prayer and adoration, asking God the Father to fill us by his Spirit with the gift of adoring hearts who adore God not because of what he gives or what he can give to others, but because he is. The active life of the Christian is always supported by the primacy of the interior life, in other words. Always supported by prayer, always rooted in the adoration of the living God. So failing this temptation to be adored, and previously the temptation to do great good, the final and most provocative weapon is advanced. Raw power. Raw power at the cost of worshiping Satan himself. We so easily forget that the desire for raw power is always satanic, always at the cost of one's soul. Even in our most deep wounds, there is often a childish desire to exercise power which is founded, which is founded upon the loss of our souls. Soul loss is a trauma of sin not easily overcome. I sit and wonder on occasion in this election year if anyone can aspire to power, especially the power of the presidency, without the trauma of losing his or her soul. What a human person loses when they lose their soul to the worship of Satan to receive power is the power to will and persevere. It's said that when indigenous people in the Amazon were colonized by the Portuguese, they lost everything they held dear, their identity, their heritage, their culture, and they used a Portuguese word to describe their experience. It's simply the word susto. It means simply fright. What they meant was that the trauma of losing their most closely held identity brought about what could be called fright paralysis, the inability to move because of fear. Satan plays on our fear and gives us power. If we will only bow down and worship him. It is so true of us. We often live in fear, and through this fear, we lose our souls. We think that it is better to exercise power than to live in fear, and so we make an exchange, a deadly exchange, our souls for power. I mean, you all know someone who's lost everything because of their blind ambition or their desire, their desire for control. And we give ourselves over to the exercise of power rather than fear, but it is a fleeting trade. Fear returns more powerful than ever. But beloved in Jesus, look what Jesus does, or rather doesn't do. Without fear, without anxiety, even as you can imagine him hovering somewhere in space, overlooking all the kingdoms of the earth and their glory, whatever that is, he says, be gone, Satan. 
And he admonishes even the enemy to worship the Lord. He says, him only shall you serve. Recalling him to his original purpose, which he lost for his own fault. Out of a desire for what? Power. In Jesus, the self-emptying, canonic love of the Son of God is made manifest. Not through the exercise of power, but through humiliation. In Christ, God is turned to the weapons of humility and self-emptying love to attack the weapons of power and earthly glory. In this, we see the dynamism of divine grace. Not that it fills us with earthly authority or wealth or power, but that it gives us the power to become children of God who are born not of the will, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but what? I keep saying this so you'll get it eventually. Of God. Born of Christ's humiliating death and glorious resurrection to become worshipers and servants. This is the final thing to be said, to sum up the whole. When we, by divine grace, become worshipers and servants, those who adore and serve the living God, Satan must depart, and the angels will minister to us. When we understand that the battle against temptation is not ours, but it is rather ours to worship and to serve, and Jesus to fight with a host of angels and archangels racking up the score against the weapons of sin and death, and when we can simply receive that wonderful gift, we become much more than conquerors. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.